Well, I, I want to do two things now. I'm going to start with a, a kind of minimalist introduction to these construction theory. And then I'd like to consider in more detail how these construction affects different kinds of inheritances in human evolution. If I'm going the right way, yeah. Um, Kevin Leyland, Mark Feldman, and I define these construction as the process whereby the activities of organisms modify their environments and influence their own and other species evolution. The defining characteristic of niche construction is actually not the modification of environments per se. It's an organism-induced change in one or more natural selection pressures in those environments. Niche construction is a process that introduces feedback in evolution by allowing organisms to construct or change some of the natural selection pressures that subsequently select that. And I think the quickest way to introduce it is with an example. And this one would do us. Ants that create gardens in rainforests. The ants do that by killing all the plants, except their own host plant, by injecting formic acid into the leaves of all the other plants, as B here, in fact. And the acid acts as a kind of universal weed killer. The result is a mutualism supported by niche construction. The host plants benefit because their competitors are killed by ants. And the ants benefit because when they kill all the other plants except their host, they provide themselves with abundant nest sites. Well, this example neatly illustrates our two basic points. First, the ants actively modify their environment by niche construction, in this case by gardening. And second, the oldest garden in this study area was about 800 years old. So these gardens are typically inherited by multiple generations of ants. And we call this second kind of inheritance an ecological inheritance. Well, it was examples like this one that led us to develop niche construction theory. So how does niche construction theory differ from standard evolutionary theory? Well, this is what evolutionary theory looks like when you leave out niche construction. The bare bones of the standard theory are shown here. It's primarily concerned with the modification of a single inheritance system, genetic inheritance, in population by a single process, natural selection stemming from independent environments, or E here. And this is what evolutionary theory looks like when you add niche construction. Evolution now includes niche construction as well as natural selection. And a second inheritance system, ecological inheritance, as well as genetic inheritance. An ecological inheritance comprises the inheritance by descendant organisms of selection pressures previously changed by ancestors. And slightly more formally, we define ecological inheritance like this. It's the inheritance by an external environment of one or more natural selection pressures previously modified by niche-constructing organisms. Now from that, it should be pretty obvious the genetic inheritance and ecological inheritance are quite different from each other and work in different ways. For instance, 
Ecological inheritance does not depend on so-called discrete replicators like genes. It actually it can do, it may do sometimes, but it doesn't have to. It's also possible for multiple organisms to contribute to an ecological inheritance and not just two parents, and for them to contribute within single generations as well as between generations. Also, these other organisms needn't even be relatives. They must be ecologically related, but they don't have to be genetically related. The number of ways in which organisms can be constructed is, is, is potentially unlimited, but it is possible to classify, classify the main kinds of these construction like this. This table shows the principal ways in which organisms can actively change their niche relationship with their environment. Perturbational niche construction involves organisms modifying their environments at particular times and places by physically changing them in some way. Relocational niche construction involves organisms moving in environmental space and choosing the directions or distance they travel, and often the choosing the time when they travel as well. Inceptive niche construction involves organisms innovating by initiating some new change in their environment, either by perturbing it or by relocating in it. And counteractive niche construction involves organisms either wholly or partly neutralizing a change that has been caused by some other environmental agent. And we also distinguish between positive and negative niche construction. Positive niche construction increases the fitness of niche constructing organisms, and negative niche construction does the opposite. In the short run, we would expect most niche construction to be positive, but in the longer run, it can become negative. For example, through the over-exploitation of a resource or the pollution of a habitat. So, the main differences between niche construction theory and the standard evolutionary theory are twofold. First, niche construction theory adds a second causal process in evolution. Evolution depends on both natural selection and the modification of natural selection by niche constructing organisms, and we call that reciprocal causation. And second, it also adds a second inheritance system in evolution. Organisms inherit genes relative to their environments and some natural selection pressures in their environments that have previously been modified by niche constructing ancestors relative to their genes. And we call this combined inheritance and niche inheritance. Now, in spite of those differences, it's actually relatively straightforward to model both reciprocal causation and the interactions of genetic and ecological inheritance in evolution. For a start, many examples of niche construction are already modeled by standard evolutionary models. And I've listed a few here. For instance, we already have mathematical models of frequency and density dependent selection, habitat selection, maternal inheritance, extended phenotypes, co-evolution, 
and several other things. But from our point of view, these standard models are obviously welcome, but they're too limited. They don't fully capture the consequences of these construction, including some of the more interesting ones. In other words, they're not general enough. So we decided to take things further like this. We developed two locus population genetics mathematical models based on these three assumptions. A population's capacity for niche construction is influenced by the frequency of its genotypes or alleles at the first or E locus. The amount of some resource R in the population's environment is dependent on the niche constructing activities of past and present generations of organisms. And the amount of this resource R in the environment feeds back to influence the pattern and strength of selection acting on the alleles as a second or A locus. These assumptions allow us to model ecological inheritance by whatever changes occur in any environmental resource R as a consequence of whatever niche construction stems from the E locus. And we can then model the feedback from the change in R as a modified natural selection pressure that acts on the A locus. And here is a list of some of the results we got from our models. I've no intention of going through it now, but if anyone's interested, I can supply references later. All I would like you to notice for the moment is that adding niche construction to evolutionary theory really can make a difference. Okay, that will have to do for the basic theory. If it's not enough, I suggest you go to our niche construction website, which we've recently updated, because it should give you lots of extra stuff, plus um, access to multiple other papers. It usually comes up if you just Google niche construction, it usually comes up straight away. Okay. Now I'd like to turn to humans. What does niche construction theory have to say about human evolution? and human, social, and cultural processes. Well, there are, by now, a bunch of different approaches to human evolution. For example, in addition to E.O. Wilson's original sociobiology, we now have human behavioral ecology, evolutionary psychology, ecological psychology, and, of course, cognitive evolutionary anthropology. Each of these approaches can rightfully claim to contribute something to the human evolution story. But, insofar as all of them, as all of them are still based on this, that is on the standard theory of evolution, because standard evolutionary theory only offers a single inheritance system in evolution, namely genetic inheritance, then ultimately, the only way in which any of these approaches can feed whatever it is they're studying back into human evolution must be exclusively by genetic inheritance. Hence, all of these approaches are forced to minimize the role of phenotypes in evolution, including human beings, whether they want to or whether they don't. According to standard evolutionary theory, theory, phenotypes have only one job to do in evolution, which is to survive and reproduce differentially, and that's about it. 
So, no matter how clever or cultured we humans are, no matter whether we like pop or prefer Mozart, no matter whether we read comics or Principia Mathematica, no matter how inventive, good-looking, ugly or boring we are, according to standard evolutionary theory, ultimately, the only way any of us can contribute to human evolution is by genetic inheritance through differential survival and reproduction. Well, that accounts for the reduction of phenotypes by Dawkins and others to just survival machines or vehicles for their genes. It does not imply genetic determinism, as Dawkins critics often suppose. It never implied that. But it does imply that the only way in which it's possible for any organisms, including ourselves, to contribute to the evolutionary process has to be via genetic inheritance. Well, the trouble is, you can't account for some of the things we know have happened in, evo in human evolution exclusively in terms of genetic inheritance. For example, the evolution of lactose tolerance in pastoralists. Now, at the risk of boring you to death, because you probably know the story already, I'm rapidly going to rehearse it once again. And just to make things worse, if anybody saw the program on human evolution last night on the BBC, this is, this is some of the stuff they went through, so double apologies. Um, the, the only thing I can say, at least two of the people on that program contributed directly to the stuff I'm about to show you now. But um, anyway. You could be, you could be accident prone. <laughs> Here we go. When our pastorist ancestors first domesticated cattle and started to milk them like this, and then drank the milk, they eventually affected their own genetic evolution by inadvertently setting up self-induced natural selection pressures in favor of genes that increase lactose absorption in human adults. And I owe this slide to add the next one, actually, to Mark Thomas at UCL, who was one of the guys on that program last night. Um, well, why did this happen? Well, all of us are mammals, so we can all digest milk when we are babies, but we lose that facility uh, as adults unless we carry lactase-persistent genes that allow us to go on drinking milk after our childhood was, was over. And typically, those of us who had pastoralist ancestors uh, can do this because we carry lactase-persistent genes. We generally like milk. But people who didn't have pastoralist ancestors usually don't carry lactase-persistent genes, and they don't like milk because it makes them feel sick. And this is uh, an example. This slide compares the genetics of pastoralist people in yellow here versus non-pastoralist people in blue in Africa. And it shows that the frequency of lactose tolerant genes is much higher in pastoralists than in comparable non-pastoralist people. Now, in Europe, um, lactose tolerance probably depends on only a single lactase-persistent gene. Um, and its distribution is shown here. And as you can see, roughly speaking, it gets more common the further north you go. And the gene is called this. Not the glamorous name, but genes are usually called something like that. 
Um, and you can find it here, marked by the red line, on the human chromosome number two. So let's zoom in on it to the, Q, the, the key mutation. We go like this, and here it is in red. Um, it's actually the T here, uh, which isn't, of course, nature being what it is on the lactase gene itself, but it's got one very close to it that regulates it. I think it's a promoter. Okay, now one gene that, one uh, question that crops up repeatedly is okay, but which came first? Did this mutation happen first? And by doing so, made it possible for some human populations to go dairy farming? Or did the dairy farming come first? And was it that that subsequently selected the lactase persistent genes in pastors and hence for this mutation? And the evidence strongly suggests the latter. For instance, Berger and his colleagues reasoned that if dairy farming really did come first, if you were to look at the genetics of, of pre-agricultural people, you shouldn't find any lactose-persistent gene. And they did that by sampling the ancient DNA of pre-agricultural Neolithic people in Europe, at the sites you can see here. And they found, guess what? No lactose tolerance <laughs> in um, lactose tolerance gene in Neolithic people, which is an interesting result. In fact, the spread of agriculture across Europe has probably been led by actually a kind of mix of agricultural niche construction and genetic changes. Uh, it's still slightly debated, but that gives you a rough idea. Okay, now lactose tolerance is only one example. It's also the only time one I've got time to work through in any detail. But it's not a one-off. Look at this although I realize you won't be able to read it, so let me try to explain it briefly. It's a table of genes that we published in Nature Review's Genetics in 2010. And this is where the second person on this program last night, Pardis Sabeki, comes into because she helped us do this. She's a big shot geneticist now at the, the Broad Institute in Massachusetts. Um, but we, so we sent a, a, a provisional draft to her as, to ask for her you know, help, really. And she gave us a few more genes. But then, rather nicely, she said, uh, she reminded me that I had actually taught her. She'd been to my lectures when she was a student in Oxford about 14 years ago. So she knew about these construction anyway, which made me feel rather good. <laughs> but um, she was one of the people talking about this sort of stuff last night. Now, the table actually is divided into three columns. The left-hand column is simply a list of the relevant genes. The middle column lists the known or likely function of these genes in human beings. And the right-hand column lists the recent cultural niche-constructing activities that were probably responsible for modifying one or more natural selection pressures in human environments in favor of the genes shown on the left. Now, if you look closely, which I know you can't, the table includes both pan-human genes, that is, genes found in all human beings, as well as regional human beings, a gene, sorry, like the lactose one. 
Now, in only a few cases are these feedback loops tied down as firmly as they are in the dairy farming case. So you should regard this table as a work in process. There are probably some false positives in it. But we also know we left out quite a few genes. And since we published it, others have turned up. Um, and again, if you're really interested, I can supply references afterwards. But my overall point is simple. All the genes in this table, as well as others, are at least strong candidates for being on the receiving end of natural selection pressures that have been modified by cultural processes. But if that's true, none of it can be readily explained by standard evolutionary theory. Standard evolutionary theory cannot explain how human cultural niche construction based on acquired human cultural activities can change human genes in human genomes. If that has happened, and the data indicates that it has, then human phenotypes must be more than just vehicles for their genes. Phenotypes must have more than one job to do in evolution. As in all other organisms, humans not only survive and reproduce differentially relative to natural selection, but we also modify some natural selection pressures in our environments, and in our human case, primarily by cultural niche construction. So, and in doing all that, we actively participate in our own evolution. Well, the first biologists to realize all that were the gene culture co-evolutionists, and here are some of the founder members of that club. They developed dual inheritance models of human evolution like this. For the first time, their models explicitly included cultural inheritance as well as genetic inheritance, even though initially they didn't include niche construction or ecological inheritance. They were then able to account for the evolution of lactose tolerance in pastoralists, as well as other related phenomena, in terms of interactions between cultural and genetic inheritance in human evolution. Now, there's one caveat here. Most of these guys were biologists, and they were primarily talking to biologists. They therefore defined cultural processes and cultural inheritance systems in ways that make sense to biologists, but usually don't make a lot of sense to social scientists. Specifically, they focused on the non-genetic transmission of information in animals as well as humans, through social learning, in ways that affect phenotypic variance, plasticity, and fitness beyond just genetics. And initially, they did not attempt to acknowledge the full complexity of human cultural processes. Nor did they attempt to differentiate between cultural processes and social processes in humans, as eventually we will surely need to do. Well, a few years later, we, including the same Mark Feldman, added both niche construction and ecological inheritance to these dual inheritance models. So we ended up with this, a triple inheritance system. Based on no less than three different kinds of inheritance. So we now have genetic inheritance directed by natural selection, ecological inheritance directed by niche construction, and cultural inheritance directed by various cultural processes. 
In this picture, both genetic and ecological inheritances are general evolutionary inheritance systems because they occur in all organisms. But cultural inheritance is not. It's almost exclusively human. In this scheme, human cultural inheritance potentially influences both human genetic inheritance and human ecological inheritance by affecting survival and reproduction on the one hand and by changing human environments on the other. So how does human cultural niche construction work in this triple inheritance system? Well, it works by various feedback loops from cultural niche construction uh, to human evolution like this. This slide shows the three main ways in which feedback from human cultural construction, niche construction, affects humans. It can do so either by changing subsequent human cultural processes via route one, or by changing human genetic processes by routes two and two A. So let me go through each of them in turn. Via route one, feedback from human cultural niche construction modifies a human environment in a way that only causes some further cultural change. It need never affect human genetics. And here are some candidates of root one type of phenomena. Uh, changes in material culture, changing landscapes, and changing social institutions. And a few illustrations for the sake of it, obvious. I think that Chinese pictograms over about three and a half thousand years, and then a couple of landscapes like that. Now it follows from <coughs> that feedback from cultural niche construction by Route 1 can change human history or prehistory, but it doesn't necessarily change human genetics at all. And if it doesn't, you will only need the social sciences to investigate Route 1 kind of phenomena. You won't need any biology. Route 2 is the more complicated feedback loop shown here. It does affect human genetics, so you will need biology, and you will need gene culture co-evolutionary theory to handle it. Via Route 2, cultural niche construction changes an environment as before, but this time, either because there is no cultural response to the human-induced change, or else there's only an insufficient response, or else there's a maladaptive response. The change in the environment does feedback in the form of one or more modified natural selection pressures that do subsequently select a different gene. And here are a couple of examples where we know cultural niche construction has changed or influenced human genetics. Um, the controlled use of fire and uh, agriculture, and we've already seen one example, and then there's this, cooking, which we know has had several knock-on genetic effects, probably including one of the genes in our table, which you wouldn't have seen, but it's the MYH16 gene that affects jaw muscle. And then last, there's root 2A. 2A is just a special case of 2. The same thing happens as in root 2, except that this time, the genes that are selected by culturally modified selection pressures happen to be genes that underpin the evolution of culture itself, probably including some of the nervous system genes in the table I showed you earlier. 
And here are some 2A candidates, which I'm sure for this group are pretty familiar. Uh, the evolution of the brain, Machiavellian intelligence, theory of mind, social learning and the social transmission of information, and the evolution of language, plus a picture of the last uh, language and language-assisted flirting, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> these three feedback loops can also interact with each other, which only makes things still more complicated, I'm afraid, when you get down to the details. And I'm not going to get down to the details now. But we, what we do claim is that all kinds of feedback in human evolution can potentially be handled by models derived from a combination of gene culture co-evolutionary theory and these construction theory. And in fact, many examples have already been modeled, sometimes only in anticipation of the molecular data that we think will eventually support them, and sometimes already based on molecular data, as this list of models demonstrate. And once again, please don't attempt to read this, but I can supply references afterwards to anyone's interested. Now, one obvious trouble with this scheme is that it's too clumsy. It also threatens to become even more clumsy when the concept of cultural inheritance is enriched by contact with anthropologists and other social scientists, as surely it must be. For example, this slide from an anthropologist, Bill Durham, not only differentiates between ecological inheritance and genetic inheritance, but it also does between cultural inheritance and social inheritance in human evolution. And I think he's right to do that. But this slide now shows no less than four human inheritance systems. So help, it's getting too complicated. Can we do anything about it? Can we simplify this scheme without losing its necessary elaboration? Well, I think we can, but only by going back to some basic biology again. Recall that adding ecological inheritance to genetic inheritance not only adds an, in <coughs> an extra inheritance system in evolution, but it also promotes the new concept of niche inheritance. If in each generation, each individual inherits not only a gene, but also a previously chosen and modified local environment relative to its gene, then what each organism must actually inherit from its parents and other ancestors is an initial organism-environment relationship, in other words, a niche. Niche inheritance differs substantially from standard evolutionary theory's idea that the only inheritance system that matters in evolution is genetic inheritance. For instance, in standard evolutionary theory, the development of organisms is supposed to begin with the inheritance by each offspring of a start-up set of genes. But in niche construction theory, the development of each organism is supposed to begin with a startup niche. The startup niche that combines both its startup genetic inheritance and its startup ecological inheritance relative to each other. And here's one simple example. Most species of insects are oviparous, meaning that the females deposit their eggs on or near the food required by their offspring upon hatching. So their offspring actually inherit from their mother 
a legacy of larval food and a nursery environment, as well as half their genes. And here's another well-known one, cuckoo chicks, like the one on the left here, who don't just inherit genes from their parents, they also inherit surrogate parents. In this case, it's the reed warbler on the right. Now, if you'll forgive the pun, I'm going to deconstruct niche inheritance into its several different components. Not only is ecological inheritance a second inheritance system in evolution, but it also adds two further novelties, and one is shown here. Ecological inheritance introduces a second transmission channel between generations in evolution, channel two as well as channel one. Channel one directly connects the internal environments of parent organisms to the internal environments of their offspring by the mechanisms of cell division and cell fusion in reproduction. But channel two is different. Channel two connects possibly multiple ancestral niche constructing organisms to descendants indirectly through the modification of natural selection pressures in external environments. Now at first sight, channel one and channel two also appear to differ in what they transmit. Channel one is strongly associated with the transmission of genetic inheritance and therefore with the transmission of so-called semantic information or adaptive know-how between, between generations in population. And semantic information is notoriously hard to define, so I'll just define it like this. Information is anything that reduces uncertainty. Semantic information is anything that reduces uncertainty about natural selection pressures in the niches of organisms relative to their fitness need. And in Chaitin's algorithmic information theory, which is probably not very well known, or not well known as much as it should be, the meaning in semantic information corresponds to its algorithmic content, or if you like, its know-how, which in biology usually has something to do with adaptation. So from here on, I'll treat semantic information as a special kind of heritable resource, which I've labeled RI here, the I subscript standing for information. In contrast, channel two is associated with the transmission of modified natural selection pressures between generations through an external environment and via ecological inheritance, and initially, we ourselves model ecological inheritance exclusively in terms of modified, of modified physical resources, that is energy and matter resources, which I'll call RP here, the P subscript standing for physical. And that gave us this initial picture of niche inheritance. Channel one apparently transmits semantic information only between uh, generations, the form of ge genetic inheritance. Sorry, the RI's got a bit blurred here. And channel two apparently transmits modified selection pressures in the form of modified physical and energy and matter resources in environments only, in the form of an ecological inheritance. But this picture is definitely too simple. Because um, both channels one and channel two can transmit both semantic information and energy and matter resources from one generation to the next. 
So instead of this, I think what we really need is something more like this. But let's now raise further questions about what component inheritance systems really do belong in each of these four cells on the right. And I'm going to try to answer that by using Jablonka and Lab's set of four inheritance systems in the evolution. These ones, genetic, epigenetic, behavioral, and symbolic. And inserting them in my table like this. So this slide shows all four of the Ronker and Lab's inheritance systems now plugged into my table. And the result is this rather dense picture. So let's work through it uh, a bit slower, starting with channel one. Well, cells 1A and 1B in channel one indicate that more is inherited through channel one than just DNA encoded semantic information by genetic inheritance. In cell 1A, Jablonka and Lamb convincingly argue that epigenetic inheritance, which they define as the transfer of information from cell to cell, can also be inherited by channel 1. And their examples include the ones shown here, but they need concern us now, so let's move to cell 1B. Cell 1B indicates that some physical energy and material resources, as well as information resources, are transmitted by channel 1. For example, cytoplasmic inheritance, which until recently was regarded as evolutionary unimportant, but it's now being reconsidered. <clears throat> and it includes things like proteins, components of membranes, and so on, transmitted by maternal eggs. Well, similarly with cells 2A and 2B. Cells 2A and 2B indicate that both physical resources and informational resources can be transmitted through an external environment via channel 2. Cell 2A refers to conventional kinds of ecological inheritance, that is to heritable energy and matter resources that have previously been modified by niche construction. But cell 2B refers to the inheritance of previously modified semantic information, or RI, through an external environment. And that needs some further comments. Now, although R can be any environmental resource, you like, provided, sorry, I'm going <laughs> to explain that. I'm a diabetic. <laughs> I suddenly need sugar, I'm sorry. <laughs> Allow me to swallow. <laughs> I usually get away without having to explain that. Okay. R can be any environmental resource you like, provided it can be modified by niche construction. But it's useful to distinguish between these three broad categories of environmental resources. R can be abiotic, for example, it might be a waterhole. Or it could be biotic, maybe another organism. Or it can be an artifact constructed by organisms, for example, that famous beaver dam. Now, one reason for distinguishing between these different kinds of resources is that each carry different mixes of R, P, and RI. And in particular, biotic resources, that is other organisms, differ from abiotic resources in carrying semantic information, or RI, in their genomes, or in their brains, as well as physical resources, or RP, in their bodies. 
Whereas a biojanny would carry <coughs> physical resources or RP. And because organisms do carry information as well as physical resources, they can be modified by niche construction in more than one way. For instance, <coughs> another organism in your environment might be just a food item. Otters modify the physical state or RP of sea urchins simply by eating them. Now that presumably affects the size and probably the structure of sea urchin populations and may eventually lead to conventional predator-prey co-evolution. But because organisms also carry somatic information or RI as well as RP, it's also possible for a niche constructing organism to change another organism first by changing its RI state by communicating with it and then by altering the phenotypic expression or its physical RP state as a result of communicating with it. <coughs> now you need an example, so let's have this one. If a parasite, say a virus or an insect, hacks into or otherwise affects the semantic information in the genome of its host, in this case these plants, say by inserting a hostile message into its host genome, the parasite does not immediately gain any kind of physical resource. What it gains in the first instance is a degree of control over its host phenotype by corrupting the semantic information in its host genome. And it has to pay some fitness cost for doing that. But that's okay if it subsequently allows the parasite to manipulate its host, causing the host to supply the parasite with some kind of valuable physical resource. In this case, it's these galls. Now, that's typically a cost for the host, but a payoff for the parasite. So from the parasite's point of view, if its ultimate payoff in physical resources exceeds the initial cost of its communication, it should communicate. But if that's possible, so is this. Communication between the brains of social animals by social learning, where the communication may be either benign, or in this case, or in the case of animals that cheat sometimes, or often maybe, it can be hostile. And an example of benign communication is shown bottom left. A juvenile chimp is apparently learning how to open nuts by using a tool from its parent by social learning. And with luck, that ought to increase the fitness of both the parent and the juvenile. So what we now need to do is add human culture. Dairy farming obviously depends on the ability of humans to transmit culturally acquired knowledge, or RI, in this case about how to milk a cow, from one generation to the next, primarily via symbols, in the guise of language, something like this. Well, because niche constructing organisms can modify other organisms in their external environments, either by modifying their physical energy and matter, or by modifying the semantic information they carry, it is possible, I think, to justify this table showing the principal components of niche inheritance carrying both semantic information, or RI, and physical resources, or RRP, between generations by both internal and external transmission channels, that is through channels one and two. 
Now, one major biological implication of all this is actually suggested here. The plurality of these different components of niche inheritance potentially changes the relationship between evolutionary biology, or EVO, and developmental biology, or DEVO, quite radically. But Jablonka and Lamb, West Eberhard, ourselves, and now many others, have been pointing out. Jablonka and Lamb concentrate primarily on epigenetic inheritance. We concentrate primarily on ecological inheritance. Others, notably Scott Gilbert and David Eppel, focus on both. But it's now obvious that some things, including culturally acquired characteristics in humans, can sometimes leak back from developmental processes to evolutionary processes in evolutionary significant ways. So it's no longer possible to ignore developmental processes when, this, when studying evolution, as until fairly recently most evolutionary biologists did. West Eberhard's slogan that genes are followers, not leaders, may go a bit too far, but she has got a point. They often are. I'll end with my promised simplification of human inheritance systems and human evolution. When I was talking about human evolution earlier, I based what I was saying on this triple inheritance model. And you can recall it includes genetic and ecological inheritance as per niche construction theory, and also human cultural inheritance. But do we really need all of this? I don't think we do. If ecological inheritance already incorporates the inheritance of modified physical resources and the inheritance of modified semantic information resources, or ORI, then surely we don't have to assign a separate inheritance system to human cultural knowledge or cultural know-how. All we need is this. We only need a human version of niche construction theory's general dual inheritance system. The fundamental distinction that applies to all inheritance systems is that they must travel either through channel one, that is internally through self-fission infusion, or through channel two, that is externally through modified environment. And human cultural inheritance obviously travels externally. It follows that human cultural inheritance is simply a particularly interesting component of a more general human ecological inheritance system, something like this. Both heritable cultural knowledge and heritable material culture are just very remarkable and very potent components of a more general human ecological inheritance system. Now saying that in no way downplays the importance of cultural processes in human evolution. On the contrary, I think it plays it up, them up. For example, in their highly influential book, The Major Transitions in Evolution, Maynard Smith and Seth Murray started off with the origins of life, but they ended up with human social and cultural evolution and the evolution of language. They therefore acknowledge that human cultural processes, processes have opened up yet another major new chapter in the something like four billion year story of life on Earth. Now our claim is that this human version of dual inheritance based on niche construction theory 
offers a more useful and more accurate framework for connecting the human sciences to biological sciences than standard evolutionary theory can. It does so partly because it allows plural human inheritances to be packed into these two basic kinds of inheritance systems and also for them to be unpacked again, if you want, and dissected out at will, including, actually, these four inheritance systems proposed by Durham, which you could do something like this, by way of packing them in. Now, multiple inheritance systems clearly are at work in human evolution, and I guess you're going to need all of them if you want to live in a place like this. And if you need it, there's our full address for our niche construction website. And you, some of you might be interested in this. It's, it's, um, it's actually this. The Royal Society has just published a theme issue on human niche construction. Um, uh, it's about 14 papers. Um, and it, <laughs> it's in the, the Phil, uh, sorry, the Phil Trans thing, you probably know it. Um, I bought in one copy. Please look at it, but I'd be very grateful if nobody nick it because I haven't, uh, I haven't actually finished with it myself. But I'll stop there. Thank you very much. <laughs>